Evening, everyone. My name's Erica. I'm one of the ministers here, and I'll be bringing us the word from John 15. If you have a Bible near you, it'd be great if you could keep it open to that passage, because it'll just help you as you go through. But I'm going to kick us off by praying. Jesus, we ask that you would show us the kind of friend you are and make us like the friend you are. Amen. You wake up to a group chat that is fully underway. Messages and in-jokes and memes are popping off. Messages of encouragement are being shared to a person who has a big presentation at uni and to another who's had a hard night with a newborn. Someone remembers that another person has a job interview and everyone jumps in, offering prayers, last-minute advice and positivity. Someone else shares an article that they think will interest the group in general, but particularly you, because they know that this is a hobby horse of yours. You feel known. You feel that you belong. At lunchtime, a friend rings you for some advice. They've been struggling, and they know that you've been through something similar. And so you talk, and you laugh, and when you hang up, you think, I'm so glad they trusted me to support them in that. After work or uni, there's a spontaneous let's-get-together-for-drink suggestion from a few close buddies, and you go to your regular, the pub that you meet for weeknight trivia in. On the weekend, you're looking forward to the wedding of a good friend. A bunch of you have rented an Airbnb in the country for it, and there's an email thread detailing who is bringing the wine and cheese and who's responsible for the group gift. Interspersed in the logistics chat are also some good-natured jokes, anticipating one friend's infamous dance moves and another sourcing inspiration for the prayer that they'll be praying during the service. You look forward to this time with people who are so special to you. Now, I don't know what you felt when I read that out. What I hope I've succeeded in painting for you is a picture of a friendship dream scenario, although admittedly it's probably skewed towards one particular age demographic. It's appropriately, but not overly deep. It's super close. It's regular contact with a defined group. It's conflict-free, but there's space for banter. And even the joking just underscores how known and loved each person is. It's wholesome, light, fun. Do you want this? Do you have this? Now, some of you may have this. And some of you may have it at moments and not at others, but I want to point out that what I've sketched out as the dream involves significant flexibility of time, generous amounts of disposable income, an unheard of lack of personal crises, geographic closeness, demographic sameness, philosophical, cultural and theological alignment, as well as a shared vision for friendship. No wonder it's rare. So that's the dream. Here's the nightmare. You get a text from a friend saying, girls, it was so nice to see you all last night. It was the best time. Except you weren't with this friend last night. And it dawns on you that there was a group hang and you weren't invited. This one has actually happened to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. Your best friend comes over to play after school, but your sister intervenes and suddenly they're playing together, an exclusive game that you are not allowed to be part of. Now, when you find your courage to protest, your best friend says, sorry, but you were being boring. This one has also happened to me. (laughs) And I think I've gotten over it. We're we're friends on Facebook, and as Gwyneth Paltrow would say, I wish her well. 
You turn up at youth group and no one in your discussion group is there. You wonder if they've all secretly arranged to hang out without you. It's happened before. You scan the playground, the schoolyard, the lunchroom at work, the meeting room on campus, the people you can hang out with, and you see the faces of people who've made fun of you before, or people who are hard and harsh and unaccepting, or people you don't particularly relate to or get, or who don't seem to get you, and you have to make a decision. Do I sit alone, or do I try and fit in anyway? You arrive at a new church, and you're welcomed by the ushers and someone who looks like they might be on staff because they're overly friendly, and you make your way into the building, and you can see people greeting each other warmly, and you think, this looks like a place with nice people in it. And people turn around to welcome you in the say hi to someone around you time, and they're friendly enough, but when the service ends and you try to pick up the conversation with them, they're caught up laughing about something, and when they move to go to dinner together, none of them looks at you or extends an invite, and you think... I guess I try again next week. For reasons mostly known to you and few others, you anticipate long-term, possibly lifelong singleness, and you're weighing up what that might mean for you. It strikes you that you will need your friends more than they need you. They will have people to go on holidays with, people who will be at their bedside when they're old or when they get sick, people who will remember their birthday, and more importantly, people who have a responsibility for making them feel special on it you suddenly feel vulnerable and lonely in a way that's hard to explain to your friends who just assume that they'll find a partner eventually. You join a Bible study and everyone is so nice, but you think, I can't imagine these people doing what I do on the weekends or understanding what my job is like or what my upbringing was like or what that reference I made to Shia LaBeouf meant. That got only slightly more of a laugh than it got in the morning, and I promised the morning congregation that that would get more of a laugh, and now I feel so disappointed. (laughs) But it kind of fits with the theme of where I'm going in this paragraph, so it actually works for me. Because you want to feel like you belong, but you don't. (laughs) You want to feel like you belong because everyone is trying so hard to make you feel like it, but you still feel like an outsider anyway. All you want is to have the deepest relationships with the people who share the deepest part of you, your faith, but you realise that you feel much more connected to your workmates than these people. And that's not bad enough that you stop coming to the group, but you feel like a bit of a shadow when you're there. You're a dad with limited time and perhaps even more limited energy. Work sucks the life out of you, but you're doing your best to be faithful there and faithful to your family. When you look around at other guys, they're all in the same situation, all trying so hard and with so little at the end of the day for anything else. You remember friendships and you value them conceptually, but you have no idea how you'd fit anything more regular than a monthly catch-up in your schedule. You don't like that this is how things are, but you feel that you have to accept this is how they are. You arrive at university and suddenly you find that you are nowhere near as weird as you thought you were. There are people like you and they like you and you develop a closeness with them that you didn't even know was possible. You'd always found it hard to let people in but somehow you do and you find yourselves sharing secrets, carrying each other through financial and academic and romantic disasters and having more fun than you've ever had in your life. These are people that you imagine will be your bridal party when you get married. You'll go on annual holidays up the coast together every year. They'll be godparents to your kids when you have them eventually. 
But then one of them gets in a relationship with someone who never really feels comfortable in the group and slowly they drift away. And then another one goes overseas on exchange for a year and when they come back, you can't quite explain it, but something is different about them and you can tell that they're disappointed that you're not more different. And then another one graduates early and their first job is in the country and you try and keep up, but what was a weekly get-together in your lounge room is now happening over FaceTime and not everyone makes a priority of it. And over time you find yourself sharing less and less and eventually you think, do they care about this friendship like I do? Hurt, you stop texting them. And even more hurt, you realise they don't text either. A couple of years later you see on Facebook that one of them has gotten married and you weren't even invited to the wedding, let alone part of the bridal party. You now find it hard to invest in other friendships. If the most solid friendships you've ever known could end over seemingly nothing, then what hope do you have for any other kind of friendship? There's a special joy to friendship. It's almost no situation that you can face in life that friends can't improve. What is life except the people that you go through it with? But there's also a special pain that comes from friendship. A pain that comes from the loneliness of the lack of friendship, confusion and grief over the loss of friendship, Anger because of disappointment in friendship. Hurt because of rejection from friendship. We're starting a new series today and we're trying to give attention to the things that can feel broken as we try and live well in the world. And what we want to do is see what light the Bible shines on that brokenness, what explanation the Bible story might give for where things have gone wrong and what affirmation it might give for why that stings so much. But we also want to explore the flip side to see how the gospel, the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, how that might bring hope and healing to us, even as we grapple with those hard realities. We're doing this because that is what the gospel should do. It's the message of God's radical and loving intervention into this world, and so it should speak to, it should offer something to, it should transform the issues and the themes that shape our lives. And so today, specifically, we're thinking about friendship. Now, there was a period about 20 or so years ago when most Christian and secular writers on the topic of friendship were lamenting the loss of the value of friendship. They didn't think that we valued friendship enough. Now, I don't think that's our problem today. I think most people value friendships highly. I don't think most people are flippant or dismissive about their friendships. I think most people today want consistency and constancy in their friendships. But it also feels like modern and particularly city life conspires against that. Studies show that you're happier if you live closer to your friends and yet to buy a house people often have to move further out and our jobs will often take us further away from each other whether it's geographically because we have to move for them or simply because they make us too busy or too tired to spend time together. Family needs draw on our time. The project of being a human in a complex world takes our time, whether it's shoveling from work to the gym or buying groceries or trying to keep up with housework. We value our friends, but that value is like the scam that is diamond pricing. It's inflated by an artificial market scarcity. Wesley Hill is a Christian theologian who has written a lot about friendship and he wrote that when he was researching this topic he found lots of different things described about it but the one thing that they all seemed to agree on was that friendship is the freest, the least constrained, the least fixed and determined of all human loves. He said, unlike romantic relationships or the bonds between siblings, friendship is entirely voluntary. 
uncoerced and unencumbered by any sense of debt or duty. Now, I think Hill is highlighting a major source of anxiety for our friendships, because if friendship is entirely voluntary, then at some point you can take yourself off the roster, right? Or your friend can. You can unchoose it, or someone else might unchoose it. Hill goes on to say, if friendship is in fact so tenuous, only hanging by the thread of my and my friend's mutual delight, then perhaps in the end, that's not something to be celebrated as much as it is to be grieved and where possible, mended. Friendships are inherently insecure and inherently unstable and that hurts That's scary. And so how does the gospel speak to this? Well, to be clear, today we're not aiming for a step-by-step solution to these problems as if there were such a thing. But as we look at John 15, 9 to 17 today, we'll be looking for what Jesus' words can tell us about friendship and how they offer us something beautiful and helpful in the face of the challenges that we've described. And so today we're going to look at three things that Jesus' friendship shows us and one extra thing that is just as important. Three things that Jesus' friendship shows us, and then one extra thing that's just as important. Let's start with the first one. Jesus' friendship affirms the value that we place on friendship. This first aspect comes less from the specific things that Jesus is saying in our passage here, but the very fact that he's saying them to a group of people at all. That is, Jesus came into the world to call people to himself, to be with them, to build relationship with them. He didn't come to build a temple or a grand edifice. He didn't spend his time in committee meetings or writing manifestos. He didn't develop hobbies that we know of. What he did when he came to earth is spend time with people. It's as simple as that. He made friends. Jesus' incarnation, his life as a human in this world, is an affirmation that we have a real need for physical presence for tangible relational closeness. Now, last week, Mandy and I had a guest staying with us from China. He's one of Mandy's childhood friends. They literally grew up next door to each other as kids. And Mandy's friend moved to China for work, and his visa didn't come in time for the wedding, for our wedding. And so Mandy's friend missed our wedding. But his visa did come eventually, and so he decided that he would come the next week anyway on our honeymoon. (laughs) And as he talked with us about his reasons why, one of the most striking and moving things for me was that he saw himself as representing all of Mandy's village. He wasn't here for a party that had already happened, and he wasn't just here for a holiday just to see the opera house, a nice excuse to have a holiday with some free accommodation thrown in. No, he saw himself as representing his village's joy in what had happened for Mandy. Or maybe not just representing it or demonstrating it, but bearing the joy, bringing the joy of his village, their support, their solidarity with him. It was a profound act of friendship for him to come. And the thing is, this is what Jesus said of himself, that he was a representative of God's village, his kingdom, here to show us solidarity, here to be with us, because being with someone is one of the most profound things you can do. So that's the first thing. Jesus' friendship affirms our value of friendship. The second thing is that Jesus' friendship calls us to deeper and more secure friendships 
Eve Tushnet, a Catholic writer, says, my actual experience of friendship very strongly suggests a need and desire for friendships to become, over time, understood as given. As given. Now, if I'm understanding her meaning, what she's saying is that she wants something that is not open for negotiation, not something that is in question, not at risk, but something that is settled, that is solid, that is clear. And I think that is what Jesus is making possible here in our passage in John. Have a look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That is the perfect, uncomplicated, unbroken, pure love that the Father has for his Son in whom he is well pleased. Jesus loves his friends with that love. And Jesus is calling us, his friends, to make our friendships like this. Verses 12 to 13. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is setting a vastly different standard for our friendships than our culture might lead us to commit to. If you watch any popular TV show featuring friends, like, for example, Friends... (laughs) You'll see friendships that are as convenient and easy as meeting every day in a cafe, no matter whose job. Like, if you're a chef, who's meeting in a cafe at the end of the work shift for a normal office worker? Apparently it works for them every day. It's easy, it's convenient, no one has to work hard at it. But here, Jesus is calling us to a commitment that puts his Father's love for him and his for us as a benchmark for our friendships, as our expectation of ourselves as we love others. Now, in a day or two in John's Gospel, in his timeline, Jesus will show us what he really means here. He will die at the hands of his enemies in order to make them his friends. Now, the point I'm making here is that he expected this, that he was anticipating this, even as he speaks to his followers in this passage that he entered into relationship with the world with the expectation that it would cost him the greatest possible cost, the greatest possible relational cost even. What I'm pointing out here is that Jesus is not a friend who's easily disappointed, easily dissuaded, easily put off, and that there's a trustworthiness to that. There's security to a love like that. And that the power of that kind of friendship can give our friendships the security that they need. But I think it can only come if it also has this third aspect that Jesus' friendship shows us. And so we're going to move on to our third aspect. Jesus' friendship calls us to more gracious friendships because he chose us in grace and relates to us by grace too. That's our third one. So the danger of the high place that our culture puts on friendship is that we can value friendship as an ideal or as a concept We want ideal friendships, like the ones I described at the start of the sermon, and it leads us to be dissatisfied with the real ones we have, the ones where our friend is occasionally insensitive or dismissive or late or flaky or busy or sick or where you are too. And so it's helpful to see that even as Jesus has set this incredibly high bar for his friendships, loving like the Father loves him, that they are at the same time incredibly gracious Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. 
That is, Jesus didn't pick people to be his friends who were smart or insightful enough to see who he really was. They're not early adopters, the the brightest and the best of the bunch. It's helpful to remember that Jesus' friends were not rich or powerful or impressive, that he literally picked people from the streets, not the academy or the elite. But the grace that I'm talking about in Jesus' friendship goes even further than this. It's worth noting that friendship is not a given if you think about the other ways that a holy God might choose to respond to a broken world. Jesus could have come to judge, destroy, condemn. And yet this is how Jesus' death is described in Romans 5, verses 6 to 10. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate act of friendship. It was for enemies and sinners. The people who had, up until that point, rejected his friendship and proved themselves unworthy of his love, and yet he gave them his love anyway. And what I think this can mean for our friendships, if we let them be shaped by this reality, well, I'm going to have to give you a slightly unhinged analogy for this, so come with me on it. So I've just moved to the built-up burbs, like lots of people living in one place, high-rises everywhere, and what that means is that I am now firmly in the land of dog parks. Now, do you know what a dog park is about? It's a place for dogs and introverts to be safe, right? They can run around, they can explore, they can have fun, they can be silly, but they can also be safe. Now, I think friendships are the dog parks of grace. I'm going to say that again because you might want to crochet that on a cushion at some point. I think friendships are the dog parks of grace. They're an arena of safety for grace to be explored, experienced, expressed, and enjoyed. It's a safe place, but you might also come across some poo at the same time. For you as a friendee or a friender, the giver or the receiver of imperfect friendship, friendship that is safe but that still stinks like poo sometimes, when you disappoint a friend, when you are disappointed, when you're weak and needy or they are, when you continue to choose friendship despite those costs and challenges, when you do any of those things, what you are experiencing in a deep and rich and real way is the grace that Jesus holds out for us on the cross, a grace that doesn't let imperfection get in the way of love. In fact, I think the very thing that was a cause for grief and lament for Wesley Hill mentioned earlier, that voluntary nature of friendship, is also potentially one of its most beautiful qualities if we choose it. That is, if we continue to choose to love, to befriend, even and especially when it is not perfect, when it is disappointing, frustrating or difficult or inconvenient, that is a powerful, powerful sign of the kingdom of God, a powerful and beautiful expression of the gospel, a representation of how God in his freedom chooses to love us. 
chose to give give himself for us and to us, that it was both a joy and a cost for him to do so. So that's the third thing. Finally, I said that there's a fourth thing that is not friendship but is just important. Here's what it is. Jesus' friendship also calls us into fellowship, something deeper and wider than friendship, a better antidote to loneliness than just friendship. In John 15, 15, Jesus does say that he has called his followers friends. But it's clear from the context that he's not intending just to create a cute, cosy friendship group. No, he says in verse 16, I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So he's not building a cute group chat. He's building a church, a group of people who will continue his work after his death and resurrection. And I say this because, one, it's true, that is the context, but also because I think it's important to see that although fellowship is not a replacement for friendship, they're two different things, it is nonetheless a really helpful context for thinking about friendship. That is, if we're thinking about and investing in friendship alone, all of the frustrations and difficulties of friendships in a broken world are going to be exacerbated. If friendship is all you have or all you think you have, then it kind of has to fill all of your needs. But fellowship is a family and a community that is much bigger than that. It's bigger than just those who like you. And so it can outlast you changing. It can withstand you not being very fun or very helpful or very energetic, if that's how you find yourself at times or how other people find you. It's not dependent on finding something in common with you. In fact, the things that make you different from one another actually make you more valuable to one another. Friendship isn't really even about you, even though it includes you. It draws its purpose from something much bigger than you. It's there to make fruit that will last, to be about something bigger than each of our own selves. And so when you think about friendship, don't just think about friendship. Think about the fellowship that you have too. Let that be a bigger source of security for you. Okay, we're nearly at the end, and so I want to help us to think about how we apply this. Now, I've actually given another sermon on friendship before, and I gave more tips about how you could apply that kind of thing in that. And so if you want more tips, you can go to that sermon and check it out, because I just want to focus on three today as we finish up. The first tip that I have for you about how to apply this is an exhortation for you to cultivate, to nurture, to attend to, to value your friendship with Jesus. Recognise the times when you are relating to Jesus as something other than a friend. Now, he's also Lord, Saviour, our brother, and so it's totally appropriate for us to relate to him in those ways. But I want to ask you, do you listen to Jesus not because the stakes, if you don't, might bite you in the butt, but also because you care about what he's saying, just like you do with a friend? Do you pay attention to what he cares about, just like you do with a friend? Do you think about what his preference would be, just like you would with a friend? Do you trust that he's doing the same sort of thinking for you as you do for your friends? Give him your time and your focus and your energy, just like you would do for a friend. Now, on that point, can I make a distinction here that I think could be important? 
I think it's hard for us to conceptualise bringing Jesus' friendship and his lordship or his command to obey him that you might have observed in verse 14 with his friendship. I think Jesus' lordship and the command to obey him and his friendship are hard to kind of put together for ourselves conceptually. And so maybe, without realising it, we start to think of him more like a boss, the way we think of our bosses. In Australia, we think of our bosses in a pretty egalitarian way, so we still want to be able to joke with them, we still want to be in with them, but they're still a boss. There's still an uncrossable line between us and them that dictates the way that we relate, and so we don't let them in completely, and we think that our value to them is in what we produce to them, not in who we are. And so we have to please them, and we want to be on their good side. Can I exhort you not to think of Jesus that way? Jesus doesn't talk about his command and his love as two completely different things. His command is love. In calling us friends, he's inviting us into something much more personal. It crosses that boss-employee line. He loves us. He cherishes us. He wants us. Now, to help you in kind of thinking this stuff through or maybe reframing your thinking about Jesus, I have what is not a richly theological suggestion, but I think it could be helpful regardless. I want to encourage you to laugh with Jesus. Like when something embarrassing happens to you and you're by yourself, like maybe you trip when you're walking, take a moment and have a laugh about it with Jesus. Now, if you don't want to look like a crazy person on the street, you can do that like an Anglican does, which keep it all inside. No one needs to know. It's all deep down inside. It's fine. But just as you would if a friend was with you and you would look at them and you go, oh my gosh, did you just see that? Do that with Jesus. It'll help you to see him as a friend. Do the same with celebratory moments and shame-filled moments. Imagine Jesus is a loving witness of those things because he is. The name given for Jesus in the story of his birth in Matthew's gospel is Emmanuel, God with us. Because he is. So that's my first tip in regards to your relationship with Jesus. Now I have two tips in regards to your relationships with other people. And they're a bit spicy, so strap in. Okay? My first tip is that you have a very high bar for leaving a friendship. Make your bar for leaving higher than your expectations of your friends. Also, don't move away from your friends flippantly or without weighing up the cost or without talking it over with them. If you're considering a decision, maybe a job or a placement or a life opportunity that will take you away from your friendships and your fellowship, where does your investment in your friendships weigh in as a factor in in those things that you consider? Now, I'm not suggesting that your friendships have to be the most important factor, but I think it should be higher in our list than our culture tends to make it. We're not independent beings. We are called into deep relationships, and those things should affect the decisions that we make about our lives. My second one is that you have a similarly high bar for why and how you leave a fellowship Now, this might be me sneaking a hobby horse in, so I would encourage you to hold this loosely, but I would say that you shouldn't leave churches without having conversations about that with the people that you've come to know there. Personally, honestly, the number of people who have left Barneys who I loved, who I cherished, who I worried about, who I valued and prayed for, who just upped and left without saying a word, 
astounds me. Now, to be really clear, it is not the leaving itself that I'm calling out here. You are free to leave, and leaving is not always wrong. There are often good reasons to leave, but it's the friendless way that it's done that I'm calling out, the unrelational manner of it. Because it makes me think, and I've talked to some of you about this sort of thing too, makes you think too, did you not value what we had? Did you not value our friendship or your fellowship? What was it or what was I to you? Perhaps most troubling for me, at least when I think about that, what did you consider yourself to be to me? Did you think that we were something less than friends or brothers and sisters? And so I exhort you, if that's something that you're considering, if at any point that's something that you're considering, to buck the trend that might keep you from doing the harder face-to-face work of talking that out with the people in your life. Now, this is a sneaky third exhortation, which is to the ones who stay, not just the ones who consider going. Because Mike and I were talking about this after the sermon this morning, and he reflected to me that when people are not very committed to a community, you can kind of sniff it out, and it can make you feel less invested in them because you're almost preemptively anticipating their exit. And that's a kind of a catch-22 or a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because they can also sniff out if you've then made that decision about them, right? That you're not really interested in investing in them. And so I think that this is something that those of us who are committed to being family in this context really have to intentionally fight against. We have to lead with our willingness to give ourselves to other people and we have to risk the disappointment and the hurt if they go, if they don't return that investment to us. We have to choose to risk that. And so I want to ask you, are you willing to risk it with me? Will you choose, will you commit to befriending others here so that we can bear fruit for the gospel that will last together? Thank you. (laughs) All right, I'm going to pray for us, that God will help us to do that. And then the band is going to lead us in a song. And then at the end of the song, they're going to leave a minute for reflection because they think that this is something that might be helpful for us as a community to reflect on what we've heard so far in the whole service. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can think about and talk about a subject like friendship knowing that it's real to you, that you value it because you explicitly called us your friends not just your followers, but your friends. We thank you for the friendship that you've given us. We thank you for the friendship that you offer people who have have not yet accepted it. And we ask that you would help us to be people who are so shaped by the love that you've given us, by the commitment, that costly self-giving that you have given us, that we become people like that who invite others into it. We trust you to do this work in us. Amen.